Hello and welcome to As We Wait, an in-depth verse-by-verse study through the entire Bible. Join pastor and teacher Mike Scanlon of Calvary Chapel, Susanville, California, as he continues the study through the Old Testament book of Judges. This is part one of a three-part study of Judges, chapter three. You have a few moments, so why don't you grab your Bibles and follow along. Please turn to Judges, chapter three, beginning at verse one. Judges chapter 3. Now these are the nations which the Lord left to prove Israel by them, even as many of Israel as had not known all the wars of Canaan, only that the generations of the children of Israel might know to teach them war, at the least such as before knew nothing thereof. Namely, five lords of the Philistines, and all the Canaanites, and the Sidonians, and the Hivites that dwelt in Mount Lebanon, from Mount Baal Hermon unto the entering of Hamath. And they were to prove Israel by them, to know whether they would hearken unto the commandments of the Lord, which he commanded their fathers by the hand of Moses. And the children of Israel dwelt among the Canaanites, Hittites, and Amorites, and Perizzites, and Hivites, and Jebusites. And they took their daughters to be their wives, and gave their daughters to their sons, and served their gods. And the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord, and forgot the Lord their God, and served Baalim and the groves. Therefore the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel, and he sold them into the hand of Chushan Rishathim, king of Mesopotamia. And the children of Israel served Chushan Rishathim eight years. And when the children of Israel cried unto the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer to the children of Israel, who delivered them, even Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. And the spirit of the Lord came upon him, and he judged Israel, and went out to war, and the Lord delivered Chushan Rishathim, king of Mesopotamia, into his hand. And his hand prevailed against Chushan Rishathim, and the land had rest forty years. And Othniel, the son of Kenaz, died. And the children of Israel did evil again in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel, because they had done evil in the sight of the Lord. And he gathered unto him the children of Ammon and Amalek, and went and smote Israel, and possessed the city of palm trees. So the children of Israel served Eglon, the king of Moab, eighteen years. And when the children of Israel cried unto the Lord, the Lord raised them up a deliverer, Ehud, the son of Girah, a Benjamite, a man left-handed. And by him the children of Israel sent a present unto Eglon, the king of Moab. But Ehud made him a dagger which had two edges of a cubit length, and he did gird it under his raiment upon his right thigh. And he brought the present unto Eglon, king of Moab, and Eglon was a very fat man. And when he had made an end to offer the present, he sent away the people to bear the present. But he himself turned again from the quarries that were by Gilgal and said, I have a secret errand unto thee, O king, who said, Keep silence. And all that stood by him went out from him. And Ehud came unto him, and he was sitting in a summer parlor, which he had for himself alone. And Ehud said, I have a message from God unto thee. And he rose up out of his seat. And Ehud put forth his left hand, and took the dagger from his right thigh, and thrust it into his belly. 
And the haft also went in after the blade, and the fat closed upon the blade so that he could not draw the dagger out of his belly, and the dirt came out. Then Ehud went forth through the porch and shut the doors of the parlor upon him and locked them. And when he was gone out, his servants came. And when they saw that, behold, the doors of the parlor were locked, they said, Surely he covereth his feet in his summer chamber. And they carried it until they were ashamed. And behold, he opened not the doors of the parlor. Therefore they took a key and opened them, and behold, their Lord was fallen down dead in the earth. And Ehud escaped while they tarried, and passed beyond the quarries, and escaped unto Syriath. And it came to pass, when he was come, that he blew a trumpet in the mountain of Ephraim, and the children of Israel went down with him from the mount, and he went before them. And he said unto them, Follow after me, for the Lord hath delivered your enemies, the Moabites, into your hand. And they went down after him, and took the fords of Jordan towards Moab, and suffered not a man to pass over. And they slew of Moab at that time about ten thousand men, all lusty and all men of valor, and there escaped not a man. So Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel, and the land had rest fourscore years. After him was Shamgar, the son of Anath, which slew of the Philistines six hundred men with an ox goad, and he also delivered Israel. Gracious Father, once again, we look to you for wisdom and understanding in these things. We ask, Father, that by your Spirit you would be the one to instruct us, to guide us, Lord. Help us to know how to apply these things to our lives. We look to you, Father. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. In the first seven verses, the actions of the children of Israel are actually the opposite of what they've been told to do. You ever do that? You tell your kids to do something and you just do the exact opposite? And that's what's kind of taking place here. If you will, please turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 7. We'll look at the first few verses. Deuteronomy chapter 7, a little bit to your left. Here Moses, speaking for God, lays out the requirements of what's to take place when they enter into the promise on how they're to deal with the various cultures that they're going to encounter. And God says the same thing in Exodus and also in Numbers. God repeats this actually several times. But here in Deuteronomy chapter 7, beginning at verse 1, When the Lord thy God shall bring thee into the land, whether thou goest to possess it, and hath cast out many nations before thee, the Hittites, and the Girgashites, and the Amorites, and the Canaanites, and the Perizzites, and the Hivites, and the Jebusites, seven nations greater and mightier than thou. And when the Lord thy God shall deliver them before thee, thou shalt smite them, and utterly destroy them, and thou shalt make no covenant with them, nor show mercy unto them. Neither shalt thou make marriages with them. Thy daughter thou shalt not give unto his son, nor his daughter shalt thou take unto thy son, for they will turn away thy son from following me, that they may serve other gods. So will the anger of the Lord be kindled against you and destroy thee suddenly. But thus shall you do with them. You shall destroy their altars and break down their images and cut down their groves and burn their graven images with fire. God had made it very clear to the nation of Israel that they weren't to get into a study of comparative religions. They weren't to develop any kind of interest in the practices of the Canaanites because even getting minimally involved in these things would eventually lead to being more and more involved. God never wastes his breath with a warning to his children. Oftentimes we'll read in the Bible or God will send a messenger in some way, shape, or form, and he'll warn us of, of an impending danger. And sometimes we'll say, well, you know, thank you, Lord. Uh, I kind of already knew that. You know, I'd read it before. I was aware of that, familiar with it. Thanks, but not really needed. And I'll tell you right now, that's the exact wrong attitude to take because whenever God warns us, it's always for good reason. 
whenever God warns us because he knows what's ahead. And so often we forget what sinful creatures we are, that we really are capable of the worst things. And just because we come to church, just because we study the Bible, just because we try to do the right things and to honor the Lord, we're still easily stumbled and then we're foolish and we need God's direction in our lives. In the first few verses, in verses 1 through 4, now these are the nations which the Lord left to prove Israel by them, even as many of Israel's had not known all the wars of Canaan, only that the generations of the children of Israel might know to teach them war, at the least such as before knew nothing thereof, namely five lords of the Philistines and all the Canaanites and the Sidonians and the Hivites that dwelt in Mount Lebanon from Mount Baal Hermon unto the entering in of Hamath. And they were to prove Israel by them to know whether they would hearken unto the commandments of the Lord, which he commanded their fathers by the hand of Moses. There was this younger generation that had not experienced the wars of Canaan. This younger generation that, I mean, the old guys that are dying off or dead already, they saw the rigor and the hard bondage of Egypt. They saw the waters of the Red Sea parted. They went through the wilderness years. They might have been children during that time, but they lived through the wars of Canaan even. They saw God's great and gracious, mighty hand to deliver them through all these things. But now we're talking about a new generation that hasn't really seen these things firsthand. They've heard the stories. A new generation that hasn't even experienced war because God has given them favor for a season. And now that older generation has died off and this new generation doesn't know anything about it. In both verses 1 and in verse 4, there's the word to prove. It's to prove it. In the Hebrew, it's the word nasan. and it means to test or to tempt or to try to assay, to, to figure out what they're made of. You know, when I was a brand new rookie coming out of the police academy, when you first get into the police academy, at least when I got in there, I was kind of scared, nervous, not sure what's going on because you get fired any day, that kind of stuff, and a lot of pressure. And then after a couple months of being there, you start to feel a little more comfortable. And just before graduation, you start to hear some of the stories, some of the rumors, some of the things that they do to rookies when they get them out in the field, the older, the senior officers. And um, one of the stories actually turned out to be true where they would take young recruits fresh out of the academy and not knowing what they were like or anything about them really, they would take them down into the pike, which is a, an area down in Long Beach where they have a bunch of, used to have a bunch of bars and stuff for the sailors when the Navy was in town, where they'd take them off to the west side or into the middle of the central area. What they would do is they would take you into a bar and they would pick a fight with one of the drunken bar patrons, a sailor or a marine or somebody, and they would tell them, if you can get past that rookie, you can go. But if you can take you to jail, you're going to jail. And they would just kind of turn you loose. And basically they, what they were doing is they were testing the recruit. They were proving it. They wanted to see what they were made of. If they would run away, if they would fight, how they would react. And these older officers were basically trying to figure out what that person is made of. Well, in this sense, is the Lord is going to prove the nation of Israel to see if they would be faithful to his word. You know, God's not doing it so that he can learn, I wonder what they'll do. You know, I wonder what their character's like. God was proving them, allowing them into these circumstances and allowing different people to be around them that would test their character, that they would know how weak they are, that they would know how foolish they are, that they would learn how much they need the Lord. You know, because sometimes we get an inflated self-image or ego. You know, we think that because we know enough of the Bible, we've been to church or different things, you know, hey, Teflon, dude, man, you can't hurt me. And we get that false sense of security that seemingly goes beyond the Lord at times. And so God allowed this into their lives to test them, that they would discover what their real need was. And, you know, we can accelerate that process in our own lives, because I know God does bring things into our lives to test us and to prove us that we would see what we are. We can ask for that, too, and it's not a bad thing to ask for that. 
The psalmist tells us in Psalm 139, 23 and 24, he says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts, and see if there's any wicked way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. It's a good thing now and then to, to stop. And You know, God, I know there's probably things in my life that I don't see or acknowledge or even understand, comprehend that are there. Would you bring it out? Would you reveal it? Would you help me to be able to deal with it in a biblical way, to repent of it, and to draw closer to you? And that's for those that are God-seekers that really want to please the Lord, that say, you know, God, and I'm glad, I'm grateful that God reveals things like in stages, that he doesn't like, thank you, Jesus, come into my Lord, you know, my life, be my Lord, and boom, you just see everything at one time, it would just knock you over. You'd probably just lay there and drool and not be able to go any farther in your Christian walk. But that through that time and over time, the Lord reveals things gradually, and he allows us to deal with it. Just like with the children of Israel, he said, I'm not going to drive them all out at once. I'm going to do it gradually so you can take the land so it doesn't go wild on you. And it's the same thing for us, that if we'll ask the Lord, he'll do that. But a second purpose in this proving, if you will, was that the Lord would instruct them in the ways of war to help them develop a greater appreciation, actually, for the Lord's help in their battles. That they would come to realize just exactly how much God was helping them, that they weren't really doing much at all, even though they were all dressed up and ready to go. That The battle belongs to the Lord, and God's going to fight the battles. Oftentimes, people will raise the objection, and I've heard it many times myself, to God commanding the killing or the extermination of these groups of people, including the women and the children, the innocents, if you will, completely wiping them out as God has commanded. And it's because they don't understand the character and the nature of God and the character and the nature of the threat. I liken it to we're watching over a group of kids at a school playground or something like that. And kids are playing in the grass, having a great time swinging and yelling and throwing drunk around and, and just being kids. And then out of the corner of your eye, you see a puppy run onto the playground. And as your attention is drawn to this puppy running across the playground, you notice at some point that he's foaming from the mouth. And you draw the conclusion that this puppy has rabies. And so right away you sense the threat as the puppy heads towards the children's playground you realize that if this puppy actually bites one of the children, they could contract rabies. And if they didn't die, they'd have to suffer through the treatment and all the stuff that goes with it. At the same time, you realize that this puppy, because it has rabies, it is going to die. It's going to perish either way. In your own mind, you realize you're fully justified in killing this puppy before it gets to the kids to harm them. And it's the same thing with God. God understands that these pagan cultures are sick and they're dying. They are so involved in immoral and wicked practices that will lead to their death. And these practices have completely permeated every part of their culture and do already involve their children. In a sense, there are no innocents. And these kids are going to grow up to do these same things and pass it on to their kids. And in the process, a lot of people are going to suffer and die. It's understanding that if the children of Israel are contaminated or infected with these horrid things, that these practices are going to be passed on to the children of Israel, it will defile them and eventually lead to their death as well. So God would use the nation of Israel as his instrument of judgment to destroy this threat to his children. And I'm repeating the same explanation, honestly, that I heard years ago from Pastor Chuck. And I remember hearing that kind of, go, well, you know, that makes sense. And then one day I ended up uh, watching some YouTube videos on uh, anti-Semitism and things that are going on in the Middle East. And you see the various groups, the Palestinians and Hezbollah, different people like that, and they've got three and four and five-year-old kids in military uniforms carrying guns and chanting death to Israel and saying all kinds of crummy derogatory names about Israelis and Jewish people and stuff and instilling this hatred in them 
for anything Jewish. And you can see the plight of the Canaanites. Those kids, they're growing up to be teenagers and to be young adults and to being leaders in their community and indoctrinated in that way. And you see that the same culture that we're reading about this morning is actually happening on the other part of the world today. And that same culture of death. And I don't know you know, how, well, I do. I do know how it's all going to end at some point because the Lord's going to step in. I'm not sure how that will happen in the meantime. But here we see that God does intervene and God uses the nation of Israel to take this threat away and to keep the nation of Israel safe. Well, the sad part is that when the nation of Israel refuses to do, to be obedient to what God says to do, they open themselves up to that threat. They open themselves up to that defilement. And eventually we see, as we go through this, the saddest part is you read through Joshua, they go in and they conquer everything. They are victorious everywhere they go, that no man, as God said, could stand before them. But then after a while, it's amazing that the people groups that they conquered end up conquering them. They didn't do it through military conflict or prowess and tactics. They did it through the good neighbor policy. They just moved in next to them and, and tolerated them and lived around them and eventually, hey, yeah, come on over, oh, yeah, come on over, whatever. And pretty quick after association, you see the Canaanites, the Hittites, and the Hivites, all these guys are now ruling over the nation of Israel, whereas before the nation of Israel ruled over them. You see a complete reversal. Why? Because they compromised. Because they were not obedient to God's word. But they seem so nice. Yeah, they seem so nice. It's like a baby rattlesnake is cute. <laughs> Have you ever had a baby rattlesnake? I picked up a baby rattlesnake one time and didn't know what it was. Oh, what a cute little snake. <laughs> they can hurt you. And you've got to be very careful. Now, looking at verses uh, 5 through 7, we read, And the children of Israel dwelt among the Canaanites and the Hivites and the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and Jebusites. And they took their daughters to be their wives, and they gave their daughters to their sons and served their gods. And the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and forgot the Lord their God and served Baalim and the groves. The children of Israel dwelt among, they tolerated the Canaanites. And again, I kind of go back to this good neighbor policy. And eventually, because of all that, they end up, as it says there in verse 6, they serve their gods. Can you believe that? They've gone from walking with the Lord to now serving these pagan gods. They took the daughters of the pagan non-believers to be wives for their sons, and they gave their own daughters to be wives to their sons. In a sense, throwing these innocent girls to the wolves, intermarrying, and then, you know, I can't fathom this. I can't imagine taking one of my daughters and just going, oh, yeah, and knowing... I can't even talk to you about what they did. I can't even talk to you about their practices and, and the, the evil things that they did. And to say, oh, yeah, there's my precious daughter. My daughter would never marry a guy like that, not over my living body. <laughs> and yet that's the compromise that they made. Serving Baal, meaning they sacrificed their children and worshipped in the groves. I mentioned last week about the pagan goddess Ashtoreth was worshipped in the groves. The groves are basically outdoor temples. Sometimes they were carved in stone. They would call them the quarries. Sometimes they were carved you know, out of trees, out of wood. But basically uh, giant phallic symbols, and they would have these pagan sexual rituals and stuff. And that's you know, how they proposed to worship. And all these different things are proposed. And it says that they did evil in the sight of the Lord. No kidding. In verse 7 it says, And they forgot the Lord their God, which is what actually led to these other things. You know, non-believers act as if there is no God. Non-believers act as if there's no repercussion or consequence to their sin because they have no concept of God. But we're talking about a nation that revered God, that feared God, that was born of God. And for them to turn away and to forget God, I mean, how do you do that? 
How do you forget your father or your mother? How do you forget your children or your husband or your wife? How do you forget? It's seemingly a very difficult thing, but what you do is you just make a lot of distance. You know, I don't know how this happened exactly, but I can tell you what not to do. When we spend time in God's Word, when we spend time in our daily devotions, it should be a daily reminder of who God is. If you're in the Bible every day, you're reminded every day that God is real, that God is there, and God is with you, and that God loves you, and it's a constant reminder of God. When we meditate in His Word, which should be a constant activity for us as Christians, it's also a constant reminder about God, isn't it? It's hard to forget about God if you're meditating in His Word. When we spend time in prayer, there's that consciousness of God. Who are we praying to? It's funny, sometimes in prayer meetings, people will forget, kind of lose track of things, and pretty quick, it's like they're talking to me versus talking to God. When we're really praying and connecting with God, it's a reminder that God is there. When we spend time in fellowship, whether it's corporately here at church or we get together with other Christian families or different things, and it's all Christians involved, that's a constant reminder that God is there. You can't forget God in the midst of that. When we serve the Lord, when we, when we find our ministry, when we find the thing that God wants us to do, again, and I've been there where I'm, I'm doing something. I'm in ministry. And I'll get to that point a couple times. Why am I doing this? Oh, yeah, I'm serving the Lord. <laughs> There's other times I'm just happily serving the Lord, and I'm just doing whatever he wants me to do, and I'm whistling, I'm humming a hymn or singing a, a spiritual song. And again, it's that constant reminder of God. And notice I'm not telling you how to forget God. I'm telling you how to remember God. Okay, if you do all these things, God will be in the forefront of your mind all the time, and that's what we want. We want to have that perspective on life. God's ways are best. If we're going to know life, I mean real life, and enjoy long life as God has promised us, then we need to keep God's word. And it's a good life. Being obedient to God's word, it's not always easy, and it's not always fun, but there's that peace that surpasses all understanding. There's that peace of knowing that you're right with God, and that's a good life. That's what God wants for us. But then we get to verse 8. And the first word in that sentence is therefore. Now, when you get to the therefore in a scripture, it means because of all the things we've just said, okay? It's almost like cause and effect, okay? First seven verses are going to be the cause, and now in verse 8 we have the effect. Therefore, the effect, the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel, and he sold them into the hand of Chushan Rishathim, king of Mesopotamia, and the children of Israel served Chushan Rishathim eight years. And when the children of Israel cried out to the Lord, so again, they're beginning to reap what they've sown. And that can be a difficult thing. Paul tells us in Galatians chapter 6, verses 7 and 8, he says, Be not deceived. God is not mocked. For whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. For he that soweth to his flesh shall of the flesh reap corruption. And the children of Israel have been sowing to the flesh for quite a while. And God now is allowing them. If you think you've got a bad boss at work or or a a mean landlord or whoever you can relate to in this way it's one thing to work for someone or to serve under somebody that's unreasonable or demanding all those kinds of things it's something else to serve under someone that wants to grind you down that wants to mess up your day every day that wants to completely turn your life around and doesn't care for you one whit and that's what these guys are god is bringing in he's from mesopotamia he's from assyria essentially (laughs) later on we're going to get into stories about the Assyrians and how they treated their prisoners and their captives and stuff and it's very very challenging very difficult very gross and this guy you know for me it's kind of funny they put his name four times in these four verses and it's a very difficult name to pronounce but um Chushan Rishathim his name means twice his name is Chushan but his name this whole long name means twice wicked Chushan 
It's more of a derogatory term than an actual name or title. It's more like an epithet. <laughs> in the Jewish language, in Hebrew, it's impossible to curse or to cuss. If you go to Israel today and somebody wants to cuss you out, they're going to have to do it in French or English or German or Arabic or something because there's no curse words in Hebrew. So the, the worst they could do is say, you're evil or you're a dog or you're ugly or, or whatever. I don't know. They've got to use a regular word. There's no curse words in Hebrew. And so as we read about it here, they give him this title, Twice Evil Chushan. That means he was a bad dude. That means he was an evil man. And the children of Israel sold into his hand for eight years. Sold. That means lock, stock, and barrel. There's nothing left. And Solomon wrote to us in Proverbs chapter 14, verse 34. He said that righteousness exalts a nation, but that sin is a reproach to any people. And that is so true. And I think that we're, to some degree, we're living that out even today. That righteousness does exalt a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. Well, that's all the time we have for now. You've just been listening to pastor and teacher Mike Scanlon of Calvary Chapel, Susanville, California, teaching part one of a three-part in-depth study of Judges chapter three. Please join us again next time for part two as we continue our study through the book of Judges and through the entire Bible. As We Wait is an outreach ministry of Calvary Chapel, Susanville, California. We pray that you are blessed and we'd like to invite you to join us in person. Calvary Chapel meets at 450 Richmond Road on Sunday mornings at 8.30 and 10.30. Our Wednesday evening service begins at 7 and communion is celebrated the first Sunday of each month at 6 p.m. To get the entire study on CD, please call the church office at 530-257-4833. And if you've made a profession of faith and would like more information on what it is to walk with Jesus or want to know how to grow in your faith, we would love to hear from you. You can write to us at P.O. Box 1316, Susanville, California, 96130. All our services are streamed live on the web at www.ccsusanville.com. Until next time, may the Lord richly bless you. you